these multitasking and these patterns that we have developed over time that in the art of slowing down might be those little obstacles that I know I needed to. I used to pride myself on that, that I was the go-to person and I could juggle 10 things at the same time as if that was some great accomplishment rather than the awareness that I was doing everything that I was missing all of my moments in life. Hi, I'm Teresa, and welcome to the podcast that explores the stories the body holds and the stories the body tells. I'm Sherry, and our aim is to connect the individual to the collective through our shared stories of living in a body. And each week, Sherry and I pick a different topic and have a casual conversation. This is Anecdotal Anatomy. You know, the art of slowing down is what we're going to talk about. And I want to start with a little story because it came at such a perfect time. So last night I was re-watching an episode of This Is Us. So, hey, no real spoiler alerts here. So anyway, so I was watching an episode of This Is Us and Kevin is cast for a movie with Sylvester Stallone. Like this is his big break in acting. And during the movie, he trips and hurts his knee. And they have to pause all of the filming to give his knee a chance to heal. So they decide to kind of film around him and give him some time and space that he needed to heal. But his body was holding on to this story. That knee was an injury that happened when he was in high school and he had this dream of being a football star. And in one of the games, he gets injured, he blows out his knee, he needs surgery, and that ends his career. So when this happens again at his big break, his brain comes into it like, you're not getting me again this time, you've already stopped my big chance once. And he really taps into the story of the injury that's in his knee and all of the trauma that's held there. And he's doing everything he can. He's pushing himself and exercising. And Toby is in the room with him and he says, you know, you gotta slow down and take a break. Like you have to sit down, give your body a chance to heal, put that foot up, put some ice on it and let the body do what it wants to do. And Kevin's response is, this has already stopped me from one of my biggest dreams. I'm not going to let it do, do that again. I'm going to do everything I possibly can, everything I need to get back up and moving around. And the thought that occurred to me was accept, slow down, and rest. So even in the I will do anything it takes, slowing down and giving the body a chance to heal and the rest and this art of being able to believe that slowing out can be restorative and healing was beyond his grasp. And feeds right into our cultural norms and the way that we are conditioned to think that being busy and being fast and productive and all of those words that if you listen to maybe your shoulders even contracted a little bit and lifted, like there's a feeling of, yes, there's a time that we should be moving and, you know, quick and, and whatever, but we are we are almost rewarded in our culture for this ability to multitask, to move fast, to get it done. When we look at, I had written down cultures there are, uh, that have been shown to have like the most natural and beautiful and 
sort of, uh, what was it? Some cultures known for living a slower lifestyle. Now just close your eyes if you're not driving in a car or operating any equipment. And just with that deep languorous breath, imagine yourself in Italy. Imagine yourself in Spain, in Greece. Maybe Costa Rica is your vibe or Japan. These are the top five cultures that honor this, this slowing down, this appreciation for the days. And for. And I'm not saying we don't appreciate our lives or our days, but these were the top five places that if you really wanted to be rewarded for this, this gradual opening to life, my words, not, not in any research, these might be some places to take some hints from. This idea of slowing down, we all know people who the idea, even at the mere mention of slowing down, will contract, will begin to feel tense, will begin to not feel the relaxation that it's meant to kind of, you know, soothe and provide. And that got me thinking about what are some of the words that feel like slowing down? Because we started with the art of slowing down. So if you imagine if your art is writing or if it's painting, grab a paintbrush. If it's writing, grab a pen. If it's imagining whatever your art is, get your tools for that. And imagine like what it would be to pause. Something in there is slowing down. There's that pause. And we have a natural pause between breaths, which is maybe our first clue. This idea of reflection. You know, we can't be you know, absorbing or gathering our reflections if we're hurry, hurry, hurry. Noticing. I mean, these are some basic things that time management feels like slowing down to me. You know, carving out the time to do the things that are priorities, but then carving out the time to just be. You know, appreciation, understanding, gratitude. I just kept going. I was like luxurious, being open, potent, mindful, delicious. Like these are words that came from this idea of what would it feel like to slow down? Hey. So you mentioned something that I noticed while I was doing my research and you talked about the benefits of slowing down some of these amazing words. And as I was researching all of the benefits that there are to slowing down, even when I looked for a mudra, which ironically was called the tortoise mudra, which is complicated to teach. I'm not going to share it specifically here in this forum. It talked about all the benefits of using this mudra as a way of restoring the senses and slowing down. And there was all positive things that were coming. And it kept occurring to me just how difficult it is for many of us to slow down. And so I'm reading, you know, oh, you're going to, uh, you can be more creative and reduce stress and have deeper relationships and increase self-awareness, but not so much of the mention of, you know, I just can't sit still and you know, these multitasking and these patterns that we have developed over time that in the art of slowing down might be those little obstacles that I know I needed to. I used to pride myself on that, that I was the go-to person and I could juggle 10 things at the same time as if that was some great accomplishment rather than the awareness that I was doing everything that I was missing all of my moments in life. So yes, we have a lot of benefits that are going to be able for us to talk about in the art of slowing down. But so many people will say, I can't sit still. So that was the one thing that came up. And just one little afterthought before we move on. And that was 
It pauses between the breath. It always reminds me that the body has this innate need and ability to find balance. And even in breathing, we have active and restful cycles that balance one and they balance them out together. This is true. And as women, it's, it's I don't think, more complicated, but we are designed to be able to do lots of things at once. If we have young children, we have to watch them while we're doing all the other things that create that. And I'm going to use the, you know, the home, you know, as sort of the example. But, you know, if we're out and about, we're keeping our eye on the kid while we're doing this, while we're doing that. So what you said, I think, after that was really key. It's our bodies have this innate ability to find balance. So in those moments where we're called to do many different things, that doesn't negate the idea that we can create balance in other ways by taking breaks. Kids are napping. We can nap. Like there's different ways we can bring in that balance throughout our days. And you had mentioned about the knee, you know, for people who cannot or have a resistance to slowing down, wait until you get a knee injury. Wait until your back goes out. Then it's not a choice anymore. It's almost this by design, you must learn how to do the things you need to do while not being able to do them at the pace that maybe you once did. And I have a friend right now who's in Portugal and she's been hiking and hiking and she has three tears in her knee. So when I put out this Facebook post the other day asking people for, you know, what they learned from the story, the tortoise and the hare, for this purpose, she texted me and said, well, you know, just get a few tears in your knee and you have to slow down. It didn't keep her from doing the fun adventure thing that she's doing, but it is calling her to do it in a different way. Yeah. When you were talking about that, my mother's voice came into my head. When I was growing up, she would say things like that. uh, She would notice that somebody did, did something and we'd be like, how did you see that? And she's like, I've got eyes in the back of my head going, you know, speaking to the mom's ability to multitask. Or we would be saying something over in the corner and whispering and she'd be like, I can hear you, right? Because her ears were so tuned in to what her children were doing. And she had eight of them. So talk about multitasking. She didn't have to do anything but pay attention to us. And she was already multitasking. I think it's harder with one than with more, honestly, because you have to give all your attention to the one. But when there's more, they're taking care of each other. Like there's, you know, all sorts of things happening. But I I get your point about, you know, having to sort of take in that peripheral view has got to be so, like, expansive. Yeah. And, you know, it kind of mimics the way our senses are. Mimic is the wrong word, but maybe it illuminates the way our senses are, is that we're taking in data Mm -hmm. all the time, just sitting here with a conversation with you. I'm looking at my screen. I've got my notes in front of me. I can see out the window and there's some birds flying around. Like, even though I'm not paying attention, see the sleeping next to me, all of this data is coming in simultaneously, you know, very multitasked in my senses of noticing, but where's my focus? And I think that is a good deal of what I'm thinking about in terms of the art of slowing down is can I have all of this sensorial information being brought into my body, but still find a way to have focus Mm -hmm. in a single thing that I am doing, like a mindfulness meditation or a walk in nature. And, you know, with those are just the things that we recognize that are coming into our senses. I had a teacher who once, and I, I put it on the teacher because I don't have the actual original source, 
but who said that we create 64 karmas in the snap of a finger. And so that really, I think, feeds into that. Whoever meditated on it, whoever channeled in that information or however we sourced it, I'm going to sort of go from the fact that that is true and say that there are so many things that that come into our field of energy, of unconsciousness, of whatever. And so many of those karmas, they say, are purified instantaneously, while others land and need to be purified over time and maybe even lifetimes, if you believe in, in, that, in that wisdom tradition. You kind of come into the world with a silo of karmic seeds that from past lives that require purification. But then there's also this idea of like right in the moment, on the spot purifying, <laughs> which I love. But anyway, that digresses from the, the slowing down, though it does speak to this idea of the unseen forces at play that sometimes we just feel exhausted and don't know why. You know, why am I so tired today? I didn't do anything different today than I did yesterday. Yet there could be a cumulative effect. It could be an energetic, you know, storm that's going on. And that's where the awareness and the focus piece comes in. Really interesting. You know, when I teach meditation, I talk about focus and attention as being that sort of single point, but that the awareness exists in the periphery and all the things that, you know, we can't shut off our ears. You know, we can't shut off the, the, the senses that are constantly taking in information, as you suggested. And that can be exhausting if we don't have the tools. <laughs> and then taking in all that information, I believe it was at camp, it might be at Rhythm and Rhyme, where I talked about owl eyes and deer ears. And I've been playing with them on my walks. Uh, the bird song is amazing right now in the neighborhood. There's just so much activity. And thank you for sending me the Identify Your Bird Song app. Anytime, sister. <laughs> but I've been trying to notice a couple of things in my slowing down practice. And one was to isolate one bird song with all of the different contributors to that melody that's going on and the symphony of sounds, can I find one and really focus just on that particular song? And then I'm putting my hands up next to my ears and cupping them like deer ears, trying to focus, like just direct where my ears are listening to, and then trying to see if I can find the bird in the tree that's making that sound. We had a guide in Costa Rica and he was amazing at doing just that. He would be guiding us and then he would hear a sound and he would have us pause and then he would put his hands up. I didn't know what he was doing way back then, put his hands up and then he would take his finger and point to a tree because he was able to find that bird that was making that sound. So I'm not that good, but I am getting better, but I'm and practicing. And sometimes it's really clear, like you can find it. I remember once finding the bird and being shocked at how teeny tiny it was making that huge fucking sound. And I was like, that's all coming from you? It just seemed unlikely. And like at least a little bit bigger would have given it a little more, I don't know, credibility. Yeah. How did you get those big, that big voice from that little body? <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, you'd mentioned the tortoise mudra. And that is very poetic for the, what we're working on today. And I had actually posted on my Facebook, you know, what are the things that you've learned? I'd woken up that morning <laughs> thinking about the things we learned and then like turned around and forgot about the tortoise and the hare. 
because we're talking about art and this is a story. It's a fable. It's something that we've all kind of grown up with in some way or another, this idea of the tortoise and the hare. And I think on season one, I actually read a story, one of the tellings of the tortoise and the hare. But it was really interesting, the various responses that I got. And I'm not going to read last names. And I'm just going to go through some of them. My friend Robin says, you know, there's actually many levels to this and that turtles move a lot faster than we think. But she says, turtle, there's this idea of Turtle Tuesday, the idea of sometimes you need to stay inside your shell in order to rest and be silent and listen and reassess. But a turtle also can't move forward unless its head is out of the shell, which doesn't really speak to slowing down, but it speaks to process. And, you know, at what point does the turtle then come out of the shell? Jess says that her takeaway is it's important to slow down and take the time needed in order to completely complete tasks. If you do so, you will not only make it to your destination, but you'll have more information when you arrive. And she talks about sometimes we end up having to do things several times when we're in a hurry. Like we, we take our keys, we drop them, we have to pick them up. Like if we're slowing down, we won't be going through all of that. Um, Jesse says, slow and steady wins the race, which is the, the meaning of this. She says, I know that's the obvious message, but I say it so often specifically with personal training clients when they go so quickly with the movement. They aren't actually getting stronger and it's much easier to lose control and get hurt. And that's really, really important. Um, and then she talks about how that translates into life. My friend, Andrew, high school friend of mine who I haven't spoken to in a long time, came into this and I love him, but he brings in The Alchemist. I read The Alchemist twice. First time I fucking loved it. Second time was in a book club when I moved out here and I had a different experience with it. Still very potent. He says, it reminds me of the vignette in The Alchemist, where Santiago meets the king and must learn to explore all the tapestries and wonders contained in the castle while never letting the drop of oil spill from the spoon. We must mm -hmm. enjoy and relish all the wonders of life while remaining centered. It's really hard to do that when you're in a rush and only thinking about the goal. Now, I'm reading these things and I hear myself, I'm a fast talker, I'm a fast eater, when I'm in New York City, I'm a fast walker. <laughs> and it occurs to me that I am rushing so that I can get this done so that we can move on and keep the conversation rolling. I'm going to slow down for the next few and really practice what I'm preaching here. And this is part of walking the talk and, you know, realizing that we're all human and that our natural instincts, mine is to go quickly and to, and I have in theater directors who've said, take a breath or a pause between each word just to fucking slow me down. My friend Lisa says she thinks it's more about assuming. Just don't assume because your strengths in a certain area are greater than someone else's. Doesn't mean that that someone else doesn't have strengths in different areas. She says, I love competition, but it should be done to raise up and not put down. Another Teresa, Teresa is part of our, our community here. She says, every, and I love this. She says, everyone has their own natural energy signature. We get into trouble when we go against our own. This is really important because if you're a hare, if you're someone who talks fast and walks fast and eats fast, it's not about all of a sudden just doing the opposite. It's about recognizing when that serves you and when it doesn't serve you and to make the choice because we all kind of default to our habitual patterns. But she ends her thought by saying, there is no hierarchy to the energies. It is about aligning with your own. And she has these little yin-yangs in there. My friend Frank says, and I love this, nap more and be super productive when the brain is recharged. 
So we have a friend here, Colleen Atara, whose link I put in at one point. She says, naps save lives. I have just a few more. Uh, Christopher says, it depends. And he's been both. He says, not always correctly. Sometimes you need to be the hare. Here we go. And give it all here and, and seize the moment. Other times you need to be patient and methodical. The challenge is knowing what to do with when to do which one. Sometimes it's fear that holds you back. Sometimes it's bravado that makes you do too much. Like that hare napped, not because he was necessarily tired, but he would, just didn't think there was a possibility. He was so fucking arrogant. Sometimes it's bravado that makes you do too much. Sometimes it's just a bad day or a good day. It's just being human. Um, he says one more thing. The hare was being a hare and the tortoise was being a tortoise. So it's like that story about the scorpion and the frog and how at one point the scorpion's like, nah, I'm not going to sting you. And then, of course, he stings him. He's like, I'm a scorpion. Like, that's what I do. It's my nature. Elva says, just be yourself and stay focused on your journey without fear that you don't measure up to others. And I think in our culture, this idea of slowing down, it's almost like the, the red A, you know, the scarlet letter of, of living. Paula says, slow and steady, of course, but also, I always thought the hair was mean and a bit arrogant. <laughs> so <laughs> attitude, sometimes our pace and our attitude go hand in hand. So if we're doing the pace that works for us, check our attitudes. Wilma, she says, I think, and I love this too, so many different ways in, and they all somehow anchor into this idea of slowing down. She says, I think of the tortoise as carrying a heavy load. In spite of it, he gamely pushes on to the end goal. For me, it's about the load we've been given and how we choose to manage with it no matter what. And then finally, Greg uh, says that the tortoise works slowly and diligently and succeeds in the end, whereas the hare rushing through, working quickly, and in the end does not do as well as the diligent turtle. So consistency, showing up, commitment. So it, maybe it's less about the pace than it is about showing up and being committed and consistent to the actions that we're taking. And then to balance that, sometimes we have to speed up and sometimes we have to slow down. But because our default in our culture is that speedy one, we're talking about the art of slowing down. Yeah. We've talked before about me kind of being slow and very yin-like. Maybe we could say kind of tortoisey. I take my time. But what I've noticed lately is in my walks, I'm always thinking, sometimes I'm out there just to notice, but when I'm taking Siva in our morning walk, I'm out there like, okay, it's time for me to get up and get moving and get some stuff done and get my blood pumping. And, you know, frankly, Siva's a really slow walker. She knows where every other dog in the neighborhood has been, animals that I'm not even sure who she's sniffing and who she's following, but she is definitely tracking. She needs to make sure that she can stop and pee on top of where every other dog has peed just to be sure that her mark and her scent is there. And honestly, it sometimes it makes my walk kind of frustrating. I'm like, come on already. I feel like some days I'm just trying to pull her the entire time to get her to be at my side and like, let's get this walk moving, will you? And I have a beautiful place to walk. And so since we, and I can hear it in my voice when I'm talking and telling this story, how I'm moving faster and faster. And I get this like energy coming up. But when we talked about the art of slowing down as this episode, I do what I always do when we talk about episodes and I start to try and embody 
what it is we're about to talk, what, what it is we're going to be discussing so that in addition to the research, I have this felt sense of what that is. So for the past week, when Siva is slow, I've stopped and just stared at whatever was in on the side of the road. Now I walk along a stream, I walk along a lake, I walk along the woods. Things are like, there's a lot of babies in town. This is spring, it's the birthing time. So lots of different animals have been birthed. But what I found myself doing is if she's stopping to sniff, I stop and gaze at whatever happens to be in front of me at that moment and just took it as an opportunity to really embody the art of slowing down. And I found out some fun things. I noticed the details that I was missing by pausing. And I noticed the frustration of still wanting to get that walk done and get on with the day that there was this, okay, we've been standing here, you're sniffing around, how long do we have to be mindful <laughs> and look at this tree? Which was something that really, really fascinated me about myself was I can sit in front of the lake at my choice for an hour and not get bored and be so happy to be there. But when Siva was in charge of the pace, I could find that I was willing to be compliant, but I also wanted to be in control. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think what you're saying to everyone is permission to just be human and that we're not only one thing. We're a combination of so many different energies. And but what happens is, and I've been writing a lot about identity lately. This has been sort of my personal exploration of self through these practices. And identity is porous, but we don't behave as if it is. We have this idea of who we think we are and we live our lives accordingly. In some ways, I think it it helps to kind of contain this massive energy that we can be anything and we've got these natural sort of tendencies, but are they natural or are they by design? Are they by circumstance? Did we just sort of practice this way for so many years that it became who we are? I know that for many things in my life, I had the external reflection to show me who people thought I was. And over time, I became those things. And so I'm in this sort of unraveling time where, and I think I said it in the beginning, where when I did my Ayurveda stuff, I always kind of imagined myself this laid back hippie chick who just kind of let things, you know, roll off. And there's a lot of truth to that, but I never, ever got the pitta, the fire in my chart. And my Ayurveda practitioner was like, honey, you walked in the room. I knew you were pitta vata, but it never came up when it, when I was the one trying to just, you know, it fill in the boxes of the test that they have to tell you who they think you are. And so it's really interesting to me because as we kind of embody those things that we've always believed about ourselves. One of my favorite sayings is don't believe everything you think, but it's easy to, and we all kind of fall into that. So what you just did was give permission as if we need permission, but a reminder that if we really look at ourselves, we are much more complicated and simple than we think we are. If we just kind of allow things to, to, to be like when I lived in New York city, I loved it so much. It became so much a part of my identity. I would sometimes walk around with fists, my elbows at my sides with enough space where my, from my elbow to my fist, that was the space that was required. If you walked into me, you punched yourself. Like, you know, I was going to walk fast, but I wasn't going to let you get into my space. Like it was just constantly managing the pace with the people, you know, but it would ring the dance of the umbrellas. 
by the end, I never even used an umbrella in this city. I would always have a hood because just constantly moving around. But I believed in my heart of hearts that that was my natural rhythm because I could eat fast. I talk fast, all of this idea. But then when I moved out of here, it took me 10 years to unpack all of that. And I realized that when I go back to the city, it's an easy default. I'm walking fast. I'm feeling the energy. But then I come home and I let my shoulders drop. My, my balance of energy doesn't start with my shoulders and my ears. It starts with my shoulders down my back. So there's this beautiful balance that I was able to come to with just understanding who I am. And then I go to my first day of my 300-hour teacher training, which is about 45 minutes away. And what do I do? I've got the Beatles blasting. I've got the windows down. And I'm going probably 80 and a 45. The guy behind me was on my tail, so I had some good uh, excuse but I was enjoying the ride. I was loving it. The wind was blowing through my hair. And if you could see my hair, you could see how much fun it would be to have wind blowing through it. And next thing I know, and I'm being pulled over. I'm like, oh, fuck. There's no getting out of this. So, you know, I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And the guy behind me and all of this. And But all of this was rushing to get to a training designed to help me understand more about myself, more about teaching yoga at a at a higher level. And all of that, that poetry and irony, I mean, that is irony right there, rushing to get somewhere where I'm going to be learning to slow down. Mm-hmm. So, and being forced yep. to slow down by the woo-woo-woo uh, behind totally, you. Totally, right? And so even thinking about it now, I feel the cortisol being released in my body and my heart is racing. And the thought of the siren can can kind of bring that up. But it's it's just one of those things, the dichotomies, the the, I won't say hypocrisies, but those kind of the opposite, the things that we do that seem counter to who we think we are. And it shows up. So these practices, this, these conversations are all designed to just get out the, the magnifying glass so we can see a little bit more clearly what's going on. Yeah. And when you start looking to see more clearly with what's going on, when, when I start paying attention and looking, it's amazing what I found. I saw a bumper sticker the other day that said, Make time for self-care or make time for disease, or you will make time for illness. And so I was okay. Well, so, you know, as soon as that focus, that awareness of what we're thinking about, where we're placing our attention, there's lots of messages out there to help guide along the way. But I'm always fascinated, even with knowing all of the positives of this of slowing down. You're saying you were going to this training to help learn more about ourselves, to increase our awareness, to learn more about the benefits that we can get by finding this balance in our life. But yet, what is the resistance that happens at some times to be able to say, I'm just taking the day for myself and resting. What is it about slowing down that is challenging? So I asked Google that very question because, you know, Google knows the answer to (laughs) all things I do not. And some of them we've already talked about. Societal expectations, right? Being productive and meeting our goals and achieving is something that, in general, we're rewarded for, for getting that thing done and the accomplishments. I also have this one the fear of missing out. I have my day all planned and somebody's like, hey, guess what? We're going to blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, oh, 
I want to do that too. And now I have this nice, calm, peaceful day set, but I didn't want to overpack it because I'm going to be fearful that everybody else is going to have this great time and I'm going to miss that thing. So that was one. And then, of course, I will go through all of them, but there's two more that really, well, there's a few more. Go for it. Go for it. This internal pressure of perfectionism. It's hard to slow down when you're, you know, have your own business and you're trying, or even not. I mean, for me, I'm going to say for having my own business and putting out pro product and programs and a podcast weekly and information that I want to be sure that I'm good at it. And I say, yes, I'm going to do it. And then that little perfectionist gets in my head in the morning, like, oh my goodness, did you get all the information you need? How's this conversation going to go? Are you prepared? And I start to self-sabotage. Um, I did have, but don't have so much anymore, an addiction to busyness. If there was too much sitting around, how do I fill that time rather than just embracing this as an activity? The activity of rest and restore is, can still be an activity. I want to jump in here because it's so interesting to me. You've, you've mentioned this before about prior in pre previously in your life, how, you know, you were busy and getting things done and multitasking, which is very young. When did your identity of yin come into the picture to sort of, I won't say usurp, although I love that word, usurp this, this, um, busy, busy, young type energy. And was it always there? Did you have to uncover it or was it something that was in, in balancing of the other energy or did it just kind of, I don't know, what is your story? I think it was really, that's a good question. And while you were talking, I was thinking it's all a matter of focus. I, when I started in the work world, I worked in a dental office and it was me and the doctor. That means that everything that wasn't dentistry or a good deal of the things that were in dentistry were my responsibility. So that meant I assisted the doctor with a cordless phone in my back pocket so that I could be both assistant and front desk uh, receptionist, whatever name we want to put on there. I did all the, I did the insurance forms and the billing and the scheduling of appointments. And it was constantly moving the hat. And honestly, I loved it. I loved being busy. I loved being able to navigate between all of these different things that I needed to get accomplished. And it goes back to something that you encourage a lot. I was not bored with my job at all because there was always something else to do. And you will remind me in these types of conversations, you know, what's in that boredom? Sit with the boredom. What are the answers in there? So being active was my focus, but I also would go home and take my kids to the park and we would sit next to the water and feed the ducks and go to the petting zoo and just veg out for long periods of time. But so I think the balance was there, but my brain minimized the not doing anything, although it embraced this, this time, this well-spent time with my sons. So the answer to the question was, I think I was always a balance of the two. But over time or at different phases in my life, one and or the other became more my focus, more of something I paid attention to. 
I don't know that the two have changed. You and I have talked about this a lot where I'll say, oh my gosh, I'm so busy. I have so many clients and then we have to do this and then we have to do that. And I go with this list. So I still have this very young part of my personality, but I think I'm better at softening it sometimes after our discussions. There's time and space for everything to get done. And again, the irony of all of this, and I think there are studies that suggest this, though I don't have them handy, that there are like those nations that I mentioned that slow down, that there's actually the word product productivity, I think Shauna mentioned comes from like the Protestant work ethic and it's problematic in its origins with, with regard to this conversation, but that their their level of output is higher than ours, even though we're rushing, rushing, rushing. When Brian and I, my husband and I did a bike trip in the Netherlands before we got married and he had lived there for a year. He worked for the knitting factory um, when he was in the music business. And so he was showing me all around. And I said to him, if we're ever in a position, because before we had kids, before we were married, I said, if we're ever in a position to have kids and if we can ever have a place somewhere else, I would love for them to have the experience of seeing this lifestyle because people work really hard. They do their jobs. But then at like 4.30 or so, they're dining, they're out, they're drinking, they're having fun. And I'm not saying like drinking is a good thing necessarily, but there's this life-work balance that felt so organic and so sort of understood at a fundamental level that, yeah, take your job seriously, do the things you need to do, but then spend as much time and effort in the enjoyment of life as you do behind your desk or computer or whatever. And it just felt so, so into the piece of balance that I think as a younger nation, we just haven't gotten there yet. Or maybe uh, that's not our trajectory, but a trajectory, I was writing this the other day, is just a direction. Everything else is a choice. So will we choose to stay in this trajectory or will we somehow have like Sisyphus, that hour of consciousness where we realize that slowing down will actually increase our output mm. in many ways? Yeah. So when we leave work, and this is something that I've been thinking a lot about lately, it sounds like in those cultures, and I'm speaking from just hearing this, that when they leave work at the end of the day, work is there in the morning when they get back, but they embrace that life-work balance. And I don't know where this is coming from because I don't remember, but in the past week, I was reading and I read that these next generation, the people entering the workforce now, they don't embrace this idea of working 72 hours a week, that maybe that paradigm is coming to a shift where a work-life balance is taking on more of a priority focus of giving it all in the time that you're dedicated to be at whatever that job is or, you know, your own business or whatever it is that you're doing, that in the time that's set aside to invest in that business, that work, that job, that creation to honor it and do your best. But then when you step out, now to be able to make that shift fully mm -hmm. into this life balance. And so I hope that's so that there, we are raising a generation of, of individuals that can embrace and embrace this work-life balance. Without going the opposite way. Exactly. Right? So, and I don't know enough about this, but you know, with the gig economy, there it may appear to be balanced, but it also may be like a yoga teacher who teaches 
you know, at 10 different yoga studios and has to drive and go to all the different places. There's, you know, that, that interim journey, that traveling piece that, oh my God, I don't want to be late. And Lippy, my first teacher used to talk about teaching down on Wall Street and, you know, people rushing in for lunchtime yoga and getting on their mats and be like, okay, I'm ready to, re to, ready to relax. So creating the designated time and space for relaxation and then the time when we're rushing, 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 rather than just, because I don't see that as balance. I see that as two extremes, you know, reflecting each other. But the balance comes in in saying, okay, well, you know what? Like right now in the work that we do, I take a lot of breaks throughout the day. I'm at my computer a lot, but starting with the morning practice and this morning, like you suggested, the embodiment of what we're doing, I took a lot more time with my breathing. I took a lot made a slower pace with it. But rather than going from one extreme to the other and calling that balance, when I feel that I'm getting a little bit too either complacent or too agitated, I'll get up and I'll walk around. I'll go into my garden. I'll, you know, walk outside, take a deep breath, do a big stretch and reach my arms to the sky. To me, that's more balanced than go, 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 stop, stop, stop. Go, 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 stop, stop, stop. Go a little while, hang out, move around a little bit, come back, do your thing. But it, it's going to be different for each person, like the tortoise and the hare. Be the tortoise, be the hare. But like you were saying before about how like art and the messages that come in, like today, but that, the other day, Corey, who was Corey Finer, one of our first guests, she posted a quote by Lao Tzu that feeds into everything that we do and especially what we're saying today. And it said, nature does not hurry, but it accomplishes everything, you know? And so there's that, that feeling of if we just slow down, we'll get everything done. And then I woke up with um, Simon and Garfunkel in my head with the 59th Street Bridge. <clears throat> Slow down, you move too fast. You gotta make the moment. Morning, well, I always say moment, but it's morning. Last, just kicking <laughs> down the cobblestones, looking for fun and feeling groovy. That, if I, if I had any kind of message for life, that would be it. <laughs> Kick the cobblestones, feel groovy. I'll keep that message. I'll find myself making dinner and singing to myself. So thank you for that. And that'll um, come in later when for our part two of this, the singing piece. Remember that when you listen to next week's, because this is a two-parter, people. It's a two-parter. Two-parter. And you talked about, you know, the complacency and then overworking the two, complacency and the getting things done, the work and the ease. And when we talk about duality, you know, work and ease are basically the same. It's just where are you we on the spectrum between that balancing of the two. Some days we're justified all the way into getting things done and other times the ease. But when I started really, it was shared with me that this is just a spectrum and at different times we show up at different places on that spectrum, as long as we know that there's a middle and that we can justify to either side, the tortoise and the hare. And you mentioned driving a little bit ago, like, uh, the yoga teachers and the gig economy where people are going from place to place. And I really resonated with that because I make house calls and I go from place to place. I no longer have an office. I go to see my clients. And one of the things that was worrisome about me finding my new place was how much driving I was going to have to do to be able to still hold that client load. And I remembered back when I was a commuter, way back when, because I stopped commuting far distances a long time ago, that I started listening to books because I had commuted for so long that I dreaded getting in the car. 
And I was almost ready to quit my job back then just because I just could not drive anymore. And I would go to the library. Yep, that's how long ago it was. I would go to the library and get cassette tapes. It was cassette tapes. I know you can still get audio books from the library. I know that, but I don't know if that they still have cassette tapes. Anyway, what happened was my criteria for the books I would check out were how many tapes there were. And if it was only two or three tapes, I was like, I can't listen to that book. I'll be done in one commute. And and then it won't draw me back. I wanted to arrive at work and arrive home and be left hanging with, oh, I can't wait to get in my car to find out what's going to happen next in my story. So the drive became a place for me to slow down. I'm at the wheel. You got it right there. There we go. Oh, see? One of the things that I think is so important about what you said is that once we can identify where that thing is that is keeping us in our sympathetic nervous system when we don't need to be. Sometimes we need to be there. We talk a lot about practices, but we don't always think about audiobooks as being a practice or it's, it's a way, it's a tool. So practices, tools, activities, you know, hacks, whatever it is that you want to call it to kind of, you know, bring, as Teresa was saying, things into focus and find that art for yourself. And it is an art. And I just want to say, like, when you're done listening to this, I would be really curious how many signs you are getting as the listener about slowing down. After this conversation, what are the, the messages, literal and figurative, that are coming into your field of awareness? So it could be you know, a bumper sticker on a car, like Teresa said, or a billboard or a commercial or a TV show. I just finished watching Ted Lasso. I will not talk about it because I'm sure I will spoil it for someone. But I, you know, as a professional television watcher and you know, self-proclaimed fangirl, I will have to say Ted Lasso is probably the very best show ever done. And that's all I'm going to say. And I love This Is Us too. And I've got a whole laundry list of shows that are up on my favorites. But I think this one is not only the best production, but the most important one that for our, our times. I have to go back. I haven't even started this next season. So I'm happy that it's at the end because I like to binge because, uh, okay, going back to slowing down. (laughs) Right? I'm not slowing down. Remember, boy, back in the day when I was a kid, you had to wait a whole week to see whatever was next. Right. My whole thing was 30 minute show. What was what? 22 minutes with commercials (laughs) or like, you know, Dallas, you know, where you had to wait until the next week. But the cliffhangers and my favorite thing was always scenes from next week or next week on this. So my family always makes fun of me because I'm like, scenes, scenes, I got to watch the scenes (laughs) as if that's going to matter because the next one's just coming up anyway. Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. So, but even in the, in the world of binging, like you were suggesting that that is opposite of slowing down. But if you carve out time to sit and watch your show, the energy of that, it may, it, it holds both like the yin yang, the stira and the sukha. And you were talking about the effort and ease and that's all of the yoga sutras, all of the teachings on yoga are all about coming into this balance, coming into this, you know, effort and ease conversation with, with effort and ease. Yeah. So slowing down, it's, it's our, it's a choice. And like many choices that I've made in my life, some of them I've made choices and everything was like, great choice, Teresa. That was so easy. Good job. And then another choice that is really 
challenging. And for there were times in my life that if it was super challenging, I'd be like, oh, I guess I made the wrong decision or the wrong choice there. But that is not so. It could be, but it's not so. Uh, there were lessons. There were things that I need to learn. I remember talking to my dad once about a, something I was struggling with to decide. And he goes, well, what do you think you're going to do? And I said, well, this is the decision that I made. I just don't know if I made the right decision or not. And he said, well, you absolutely did. I said, well, how do you know that I absolutely made the right decision? And he says, because you made the decision. And from now on, anything that you think of that would have happened if you made the other choice is just a projection. It's just a story that you're telling. You don't know what would have happened had you walked down that road. This one might take you a certain distance and then, you know, guide you to move someplace else. It might even guide you back to the other choice. But for whatever reason, you needed to be here first. And so slowing down, it's a personal choice and a journey. And sometimes that art is flowing from my fingertips. And sometimes my painting looks all chaotic. And for those of you who are listening who identify as being a very slow person in the way that we're talking about it, it makes me feel like, Teresa, when we were talking about yin and people who are hypermobile, should they be practicing yin? Because they're already there. I'm doing air quotes for there because wherever there is. But you suggested that working with the practice in a different way. So if you're already someone who identifies as slow and maybe even you know, criticized for it or somehow judged for it or, you know, or not. I mean, however it is that you're showing up for this, there's just a different way to work with the slowness. So maybe it's not adding more slowness in. Maybe it's understanding the value and benefit of, of being slow in whatever it is that you're doing and then recognizing where maybe sometimes you need to, you know, take a deep breath in fast and, and let it out fast. Like maybe it's finding that balance, but honoring that peace rather than vilifying it or thinking anyone else is, again, with the air, loose air quotes, I always say I hate them, but I use them a lot. But anyone who might be vilifying you for this, it's like, fuck them. This is your journey. You get to, like you said, you've made this choice and maybe it's not a choice. It's just who you are. But this whole thing is about understanding self a little bit better. Who are you? And is this still in service? Yeah, one of the benefits of slowing down, it's not the only way to get to a deeper sense of self-awareness. But I know that if I take time to like really be with myself when I'm making choices and decisions and feeling it, uh, and that I think is where I found my self-awareness is I even started this conversation with, I when I really spend time to think about it, blah, blah, blah. But really what's happened is I've spent time to feel into the different choices and decisions and trust that when my body is reactive, that that is an invitation for me to notice what that reaction is and why is it reacting that way. There was a time where I would just push it off to the side and say, oh, I just got to get this thing done. But now when I can feel the resistance, what is the resistance? And can we sit with that to find, or can I, and I have, this deeper sense of self-awareness. Why am I avoiding mm -hmm. this thing? And sometimes I find that I am avoiding this thing I know I need the most. And it is just so curious to me that with all that I know about 
self-care and all the times that I talk about it, when I find a resistance to actually doing it, mm -hmm. I really have to kind of chuckle at myself and take the time to say, why are you, why, why? And the chuckle is really important. There are two activities that, that I have in my life that are reminders that are constant sort of teachers for me. One is the ritual of tea. I loved, and one of the words that came up that I didn't say because I wrote it in a different column was this idea of ritual. Ritual helps me slow things down. It brings consciousness, it brings awareness, it brings intentionality to the thing. And when there's intention, and you'll, you've probably heard me over to like, I can go off the rails and I start, you know, stream of conscious, you know, talking and then I don't know where the fuck I am. And, you know, that's, that's not, that's not, you know, what we're talking about here, a more deliberative way of communicating. So the first time I entertained this idea of the ritual of tea was in the late 1990s when I was actually maybe 99 or 2000 because I was at the Shambhala Center in New York City. And we were, you know, talking and also flower arranging. They did Ikebana, which is, mm -hmm. I think, Japanese flower arranging. Ikebana, I may be wrong on that. But that's a beautiful thing. I have a good friend who does flowers and it's just a beautiful exercise of deliberate, slowing, you know, conscious choices. But so I'm reading this piece on how to make the perfect cup of tea. I've got my kettle on my stove. I don't think I had a microwave, but I had my kettle on the stove. The water was boiling in the kitchen in the other room that I couldn't hear or see. And I'm reading this article. I'm making the perfect cup of tea. And then I smell something burning and I go into and I used to say I burned the water, but you can't do that. There was no water left to burn. I did burn the bottom of the kettle after all of the water had evaporated. And, and the kettle was still on the stove for an undisclosed amount of time. And I had to laugh. It was the giggle. I laughed so hard at the irony of that, of, you know, working for the perfect cup of tea and burning the fucking kettle. Like that to me was just pure poetry. And over time, like whatever becomes a ritual has that sort of a consciousness, that extra bit of, of awareness. And the other thing has been gardening because it's new for me. It's not something I do naturally. I did, was not born with a green thumb. I tried to grow some shit in New York City and none of it worked out, except for, you know, the peace lilies are great because as soon as they look like they're, they're drooping, you just give them water and they come back. But when the quarantine happened, I was, you know, thinking, man, you know, I'd love to have, be, grow my own food. What am I waiting for? I've always wanted to, but it never felt in rhythm or rhyme with my own energies because I am so like, boom, boom, boom. Will I be able to wait for the fucking thing to grow out of the ground? And, you know, there's patience. Patience is part of slowing down. And I had to really teach my, I was not, in the times when I thought I was this laid back hippie chick, I probably also put patience as part of my attributes, but definitely not. <laughs> I was not a patient person, but gardening. And now like, this is my fourth summer doing the gardening. So this is my fourth summer. First one, I had help all the time and it thrived. I had a great gardener, someone who knew what he was doing. Second summer, had him for a little bit. Not so much. I did get food. I was able to kind of maintain it and keep it going. Third summer, no help. It really became uh, a mess. It was just a mess. And I neglected it. It was not a part of my practice. This year, I'm paying attention to it. I put in peas that didn't say they were climbing, but as I saw them sprawling out on the ground with their little wraparound thingies, I was like, oh my God, you guys need cages. You need something to climb. So I had over the previous three years learned more than I knew that I had learned through just paying attention, through just showing up and watching. And so I made some choices. Some of those choices, like you suggested, are going to work out for the, you know, the growth of the food. And some of them are not. 
doesn't mean they're wrong choices or right choices, but last year neglecting the garden was not a wrong choice either. It was something I needed to do in that moment to keep my energies in balance because that was just too much. It was too much effort for not enough yield. But this year I even started planting flowers from seed and I planted some peppers from seed and I am watching little things come up. Now, some things, I don't know if they're just weeds that came with the soil that I used, but I'm sort of picking one here and there and I'm not organized. I'm not doing beautiful rows of things, which would require some patience and maybe a little slowing down. But I get into that mad science that, you know, the way you do one thing is the way you do everything. The way I taught, the way I, the way I teach, the way I cook, the way I garden, it's just an extension of who I am. But in the slowing down, I get to, to learn a little bit more and I get to become more of who I am by the slowing down. Yeah, I too have, uh, I'm back to having a garden. <laughs> I've always, in any time I have the space for a garden, my garden is all in containers. And one of the things that I love, it's small because it's a container garden. So I have to have a pot for everything that I'm growing. But one of the things I love about having a garden and a, and a container garden is watering it every morning. And that watering ritual of going out after I've walked Siva and had my coffee, I go out and water all of the different pots and make sure that they have enough, enough hydration to grow. But the other thing that I have been really <laughs> finding as a great practice of slowing down is deadheading my flowered pots. Because deadheading means you get more flowers. And if you let all of the dead heads kind of hang out on the, on the plant, then you don't create the space for more growth and the space for more flowers and images, not images, flowers and growth. So before I water, I go out and I pick one at a time these flowers that have already bloomed and then curled up into their next stage. And I drop them into the garden, hopefully, you know, I mean, they're not that big, but I'm sure they're feeding some of their energy into the soil as well. Flower power. Flower, flower power. power. Oh. I guess as, as someone who self-identifies as a deadhead. <laughs> yes. Flower, and then that brings more flowers. Like, you know, come on, sugar mag, let's make this happen. A little scarlet yes. begonia action. Let's, <laughs> let's uh, you know. It's one of those things that I've known, but I didn't always make time to do, but I'm getting so much joy out of just creating that space for new growth. And you, and you bring up the other interesting thing that we brought up early on is that sometimes it's not about the pace, but it's about showing up with consistency and commitment. And so, you know, going out every day to water the garden, it's not necessarily, I mean, for me, I'm standing there with my hose and I'm kind of doing the garden. It's naturally slow because I'm not really running or moving anything, but it's more that it's every day. And sometimes I go out after the rain from the previous day and put my finger in the soil and I don't need to water it. You mm -hmm. know, it's reading the room. It's kind of going in there and saying, okay, you're doing fine. And I talk to the plants and that's sort of a nice little you know, walking meditation. But so pace, consistency, all of this commitment to, to all of this is really important. To come full circle with the tortoise and the hare, and this is just very short, and this is just coming out of my messy mind, but this idea of, you know, we learn, we hear these stories when we're little. We, I mean, you say tortoise and the hare of certain generations, people, everyone's going to be like, hey, I know that story. I know that story. 
And remember that everything I learned needed to know I learned in kindergarten. There's a generation of people who know that poem, that beautiful piece. But as quickly as we learn things, it's also as quickly as we seem to forget. And so what did we learn and forget from the tortoise and the hare? And I don't mean that we've actually academically forgotten the messages, because as soon as I put that post up, everyone is putting the message out there. And a lot of these people who message back are absolutely living the message. But for many of us who are looking at it and saying, yeah, I know, you know, slow and steady wins the race, are not actually living that way. So where is the space between, you know, learning something and then forgetting? So what did we learn and what did we forget from the tortoise and the hare? We learned that being humble is a better look than wearing the mask of arrogance. We learned that a confident, fast talker can charm his way only so far before his talent is tested. We learned that slow and steady wins the race and you'll get wherever you're, you want to go one step at a time. You take one step every day, you're going to get where you want to go. We learned that the quote unquote finish line is accessible to all who commit to moving forward regardless of the pace. We learned that it's not the speed that matters, rather the steadiness, commitment, and consistency. I've said that already, but those are the things that sort of came up in a formal way. What we forgot was that one can be confident and compassionate. One can be charming, and like the hair, and honest, and still make an impact. We learned that we forgot that it's the journey. <laughs> and we forgot that Bombast never won anything on its own. You know, the hair could have and maybe would have won the race if his arrogance didn't say, oh, you know what? That stupid turtle's not going to make it here. I'm going to take a nap. I don't even know if he was actually tired when he took the nap. He just, maybe he was after greeting all his fans and doing all of his stuff. But if he had just stayed commitment, committed and consistent, he would have won the race. So slow and steady, maybe that's it. Until next time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening, for rating, reviewing, and subscribing to our channels and other stuff. Thank you for inspiring us to have these conversations and to create contemplative live experiences that move our bodies, hearts, and minds to the rhythm of our highest selves. Thank you for showing up. Feel free to send us your stories, questions, and comments to anecdotalanatomy at gmail.com. As always, we want to thank our amazing editor, Judith George, Keith Kenny for our fun music, and Cindy Fatsis for our photos. Journey with us as we continue down the roads of discovery, taking the detours and meeting the mysteries. You are our why. See you next time.